Philippians 1, verse 18. It's the second half of 18, actually. And we're going to be looking from that verse down to verse 26. So, Philippians 1, verse 18. At the, end of, at the end of verse 18, begins like this. Paul writes this. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let me just pray and then we'll, we'll get stuck into that great scripture. Well, Father, we pray that right now you would um, help me to speak truth, and help us all to hear truth, um, to listen, um, to be you for, that you would find us teachable to your word and spirit. We pray that um, just as you inspired these words to be written many, many years ago, you would um, make them live to us again today. We pray this for your sake. Amen. I really am thankful for the opportunity just to come and to preach tonight and, and for many reasons, but one of them is I get to preach on this text and this text has, been, has a verse in it which has been particularly significant to me in my Christian life. So I hope it's not too self-indulgent, but I'm going to give you just a couple quick stories about why that is the case. Um, the first story is I grew up as the youngest of four boys. So it was a kind of that kind of house. I just think boys in country Queensland, that was, that was my life. And, and as the youngest of four boys, I didn't, ha- I didn't ever get my own bedroom. And so part of what it was like to live for me was I went from room to room just sharing around with the older three brothers. And when it came to about, I was about 10 or 11 when I was sharing uh, the room with my eldest brother, who would have been about 18 years old at the time. And it was a, an unbelievably significant time for me because my eldest brother began to just devote himself to memorizing scripture. So just large portions and small portions, he just dedicated himself to it. Now, he's not an academic. He left school at the end of year 10 to become a builder. He's not inclined towards academia or memorize, but he, he loved the Word of God. And I just can't tell what kind of impact that had on my little heart, my little 10-year-old heart, to see my brother praying and reading scripture like that. But one of the one verse that stuck out to me way back then that I remember over all the verses was this one, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. And so that kind of gripped me just as, as a young like, 10-year-old thought, wow, there's a verse that, 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 that speaks to the Christian, the vision for a Christian life and a Christian death. I mean, it's, it's powerful prose, isn't it? I mean, it's a powerful kind of turn of phrase, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But it's not just the language and not just the, the clever turn of phrase, it's the content of it which is striking, isn't it? That here's a vision for our lives and for the Christian death. Um, the second story, if you fast forward in my life to about, I was about probably 18 or 19, I was introduced to the ministry of John Piper, preacher, pastor in America, who, who also had a significant, profound impact on my life. And, and the first things that I saw was he, he was preaching two messages to thousands of youth about the same age that I was, about the glory of God. And, and he spoke, and then the title of the two talks was, to live, it was don't waste your life, sorry. It was don't waste your life. The first talk was on this verse. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And then the second talk that he gave, he began like this, and he said this. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and to die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, obvious, unchanging, glorious things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. And so you're in a series, Shabu mentioned earlier, that big truths that shape all of life. And I think, the, and I think this is the path to a, essentially an unwasted life that we, would, we only need to know a few big truths and be mastered by them for our lives to be an unwasted thing. Um, and I think this passage gets to that um, because there are, obviously, there are other visions for our lives. I don't, depending on what stage of life you're at, I, when I was, I was talking to our church, I say, guys, the world has a lot of visions for your life. Nike has a vision for your life. Right now, now, I'm just not thinking about myself now or my wife, that, that we would have a godly vision for our I'm thinking of my children. And I say, children, Nike has a vision for your life. It's a powerful vision. Like they market it well. Right? You go down to Eastland, and Eastland has a vision for your life. Each shop has certain visions for your life. Every, sporting, every sport in Melbourne has a vision for my children's life, and I, need to, I want to uh, compel them to, to know that, that God has a greater vision for their life, a far more glorious vision for their life, indeed for their life and their death. Um, and we all live with some version of this sentence, don't we? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We, we finish it differently, don't we? Though, so, so if you go to the university, then say, well, they'll, they'll say, for me to live is pass with honours. You know, or for me to live is um, you know, get my parents' approval. For me to live is party and just enjoy and just kind of waste this, these four or so years. Um, then you go into the, into the city and ask the businessman. The businessman says, well, for me to live is 
climb up the corporate ladder for me to live is to excel and to gain money and notoriety for myself. Come out to the suburbs and ask the the parents in the suburbs and say, well, for me to live is this kind of life, this kind of home, this kind of marriage and these kind of kids, right? And then you go, and then ultimately to retire one day, and then you go to the retirement. Well, Well, for me to live is potentially just enjoy life. Like I've worked hard and I want to enjoy, I want to play some golf and I just want to enjoy these last years of my life. A while back I saw a couple videos on the, on the internet, sometimes the internet's useful, and I saw a couple videos which really put all of this into stark contrast. And the first video, I don't know if anyone's heard of Ronda Rousey. Has anyone heard of Ronda Rousey? She's a f- famous mixed martial arts fighter, so female mixed martial arts fighter in the octagon and, and she's just a really you know she was I mean she dominated the sport for many many years she was known as potentially the most dominant sports person in the world just whatever whatever discipline it is she was the most dominant until it came to last year at the end of the year she was in Melbourne by all for all places and she lost right and so then she, she, she didn't just lose though she lost badly got her jaw broken by Holly Holmes and then six months later, she was doing an interview with Ellen DeGeneres, and she, with tears, recounts what it was like for her in the moments following this fight where she lost. Like for the first time, she had lost. Sitting in the corner of the medical room, she said this. She, this was what was going through her mind. She said, what am I anymore if I'm not this? And I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one gives a about me anymore without this. Because, of course, if to live is to be undefeated, what happens when you're defeated? So, so, so if to live is literally anything in this world, this material world, then, then, then of course it can be taken from us. So then what then? And then the other video was um, in stark contrast to that, a speech by a man named Monty Williams. And I'm a big NBA fan, and he was an NBA coach. Um, and, it was, and it was around the same time as this, this, this video that, that they saw of Ronda Rousey. But here's Monty Williams speaking at his wife's funeral. So he has lost something far greater than a, a fight in a sport. He loses his wife, with, left with his five kids. And he speaks at the funeral, and, and these are the words that he says he says life is hard it is very hard and that was tough but we hold no ill will toward the donaldson family this is the family who 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 are responsible for his wife's death in, in a car accident and we as a group brothers united in unity should be praying for that family because they grieve as well so let's not lose sight of what's important god will work this out my wife is in heaven God loves us. God is love. And when we all walk away from this place today, let's celebrate because my wife is where we need to be. And I'm envious of that. We didn't lose her. When you lose something, you can't find it. I know exactly where my wife is. I'll miss holding her hand. I'll miss talking with my wife. He went on talking about how much he loved to spend time with his wife. In fact, he would rush home from work so that he could get to spend some time with his wife at night. And he said this, Most of the times we didn't do anything. We'd just be at the house sitting around doing nothing. I'm going to miss that. 
Let's not lose sight of what's important. God is important. What Christ did on the cross is important. And I think that's, that's when to live is Christ. Because, of course, if to live for him was his wife, it would have been a very different speech, wouldn't it? See, without God, there is, if this is all there is, essentially, if there is no God, there is no start, there is no end, it's just this kind of journey that we're on in life, it, doesn't, it didn't start anywhere, it doesn't lead anywhere, then any talk of a big vision for our life, God's vision for our life, is really nonsensical. Um, Dick Lucas, a pastor in, in, the, in the UK, it, to, to, uses this illustration. I think it's really helpful. He says, just, just imagine we're all, everyone in this room, we're all on a luxury train and we're just zooming through the, the kind of countryside for about six years and I turn to one of you and I say, so when do we get off? And you say, oh no, we don't get off. Oh, when did we get on? No, we never got on. Oh. And then so, and so just imagine if that continued on for another 20 years. We're just in the train together. Now, we could make something of it, I think. So we've got some musicians. We could have some music. You know, some of us are probably smart, and they could teach us things. We could have some kind of culture there. I'm sure some are good at painting, and some could paint the countryside as we're whizzing through it. Like, we could make something of it. But I guess at the end of the day, you wouldn't be surprised if you're walking down the hall and you see someone standing there with his hand on the latch ready to throw himself out. Because, of course, if there's no start and there's no end, what's the point of the journey? The journey loses all, all ultimate meaning. The Christian worldview is that life is linear, that there was a start and there is an end. And that's where we're headed towards. And I guess this is what we're talking about this evening is, is, is how are we going to spend that time? So, so we all have this in common, whether you're a Christian in this room or you're not a Christian in this room, we all have this in common. We have the gap between this moment and the moment of our death. The question is, how, how are we going to spend that time? Right? I mean, what, what the difference is, of course, how long we have, how easy or hard that journey is, but we all have that don't we? So how will we spend, what is God's vision for that time in our lives? And I think what we get in this passage is an answer to that. So Paul is writing, um, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, Paul is in prison, um, as you, you may, may or may not know, um, and he's writing to a church that he dearly loves. Um, the, the, the letter to the Philippians is, is a really wonderful, warm letter. And Paul writes this, so let's get into the passage. Verse 18b, Paul begins like this. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. So if you just cast your eyes to the verse just above it, or the, the, the start of that verse that we're in, Paul's just written, and in that I rejoice. So that was present tense. Paul's saying, I am rejoicing, in that I rejoice. Now, his circumstances, of course, didn't lend themselves to rejoicing. He's in prison. He's in prison for having, you know, innocence, for having preached the gospel, having lived out the gospel consistently. That's found himself in prison. He's finding himself um, abused by other believers who are preaching and seeking to afflict him while he's in prison. But Paul can say, considering all that, I rejoice in that because he knows that all of this is working to advance the gospel. So that's what he's just come off saying. I look back and I go, man, that's fine. And th that's radical, isn't it? I mean, that, his circumstances don't lend themselves to rejoicing, but you know what? In that, I rejoice. I'm not doing so well, but the gospel's advancing. 
I can rejoice in that. Now that's radical. I think this is even more radical because what he does now is get into future tense. Yes, and I will rejoice. So he can look into the mysterious future that he does not know what's going to happen and say, here's what I do know, I will rejoice. How can you possibly say that, Paul? You don't know what's to come. And of course, he doesn't know what's to come. He's in prison. This may end up in his freedom because he's on trial. So he may get let out. He may get executed. How can you say, I will rejoice? Uh, But that is his confidence. That whatever comes, he has a rock-solid, bulletproof joy, if you like. Um, Verse 19 goes like this. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. I said, this is the means, and this is what he longs for in the the end. He's talking about deliverance, right? So he's already established, doesn't matter what comes for me, I will rejoice. You know, it's it's like the old hymn, isn't it? When peace like a river attendeth my way. So it's peace, right? Peace like a river attendeth my way. But when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, why, Paul? Why can you say that? Well, he knows that all of this is going to turn out for his deliverance. Now, what does he mean by deliverance? He could mean, I'm going to get out of prison. I don't think that's what he means. I think he's talking about the end times when he stands before Jesus. This will, all of this will turn out for his deliverance. There's a couple of reasons why I think that's the case. One is that he only ever uses this word that he uses for deliverance in the spiritual sense. Paul, Paul uses a different word when it's a, just a physical kind of deliverance. The second reason why I think it's end times before Jesus' deliverance is he's quoting Job. And so you think of Paul as the innocent sufferer in in his situation right now. If you think Old Testament, you think innocent sufferer, who do you immediately think of? You think of Job, don't you? And then he's he's quoting Job who who said himself, in in the Greek version of the Old Testament, said this, word for word, like Paul said, though he slay me, so he's talking about God, though even God slay me, I will hope in him, yet... I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation. That's the, that's the quote. This will be my salvation. So the, Job is suffering innocently. Zophar, his friend, is not very friendly, he's not a great friend, comes along and says, well, Job, you're not innocent. There must be some kind of secret sin in your life. So why don't you just fess up and tell us the reality? What is your sin? And Job wants to say, Oh man, I can't wait for the day when you can't talk to me like that. That I would stand before Jesus and he would vindicate me. That would be my deliverance. That would be my salvation. So then skip back to Paul. Paul's quoting Job and he's saying, One day I'm going to stand before Jesus and all these people who mock me, all these people who have imprisoned me, all these people who have, who have persecuted me, even the brothers in Christ who seek to afflict me while I'm in prison, all of this is going to turn out for my deliverance, my vindication, that I did what was right, I did what was godly. I'm an innocent sufferer. So, but that's then, right? So Paul wants to get to that day. But this is now, right? So how is Paul going to get from here to that day that he's confident that he'll be delivered. There's two means that he think, believes that God's going to use. And I think they're fairly surprising means. Firstly, he says, they're prayers. 
the prayers of the people in Philippi. He says, for I know that through your prayers. I just, for me, that is astounding. Because this is the Apostle Paul. And he's, he's saying, I'm, my confidence that I will make it to the end and I will find deliverance on that day before Jesus is because I know you guys in Philippi are praying for me. I think that's amazing because I think we often get the idea that some people just don't really need our prayers. You know, and some people are such machines for the Lord and so far well advanced in their walk with Christ that they don't need my prayers. Well, this is the Apostle Paul, right, who wrote Bible, you know, who wrote New Testament, like large chunks of the New Testament, and he's saying, I need your prayers. I want to make it to the end. I don't want to fall away. And one of the means, one of the crucial means that I need, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, missionary of missionaries, I'm going to make it to the end, is that this church prays for me. They pray for him. I assume things like, Father, we love Paul. Keep him faithful before Caesar. Father, we pray that he doesn't get sucked in by those teachers wanting to afflict him. Father, we know he will not stop sharing the gospel even while he's in prison. So please make it fruitful for him. Father, keep him loving Jesus above everything else, even his health. So that's the first means he's going to make it to the end. The second means is this. Help the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So he's going to have their prayers and he's going to have the Holy Spirit with him. I don't think the Holy Spirit just helps, like, like helps in a vacuum. I think the help is the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the answer to their prayers. They pray, oh Lord, give him, give him fresh experiences, fresh anointings of the Holy Spirit so that he can make it through this, this fiery trial that he finds himself. And God says, I can't give him anything better than myself. And so here's my spirit to keep him faithful. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope. So there, now we're getting into Paul's hope for his life. His expectation and hope for this time between now and his deliverance in the end. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is what he's saying. Here's my eager hope and expectation. This is what I long for. Now, we all have this as well. Christian or not Christian, you go, well, what's your eager expectation and your hope for your life? G.K. Chesterton, he said this. He said, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. Right? So, so we all, if your hope's not in God, then what, it's in something. Right, so, so compare is the question for you. Compare it with this. And Paul puts his eager expectation in both a negative way and a positive way. So he's saying, it's not this and it is this. So first, what it's not. What, is, what isn't his eager expectation? He says, that I will not be at all ashamed. Now, what's shame? Well, of course, shame is, is when you failed in front of people that you're trying to impress, essentially, isn't it? So it's the kind of the kid in the front of the school, and, and he forgets his lines, and he was wanting to impress, and it didn't go well, and so he feels shame, right? We put up with this 
almost feels like weekly when the sporting person or the politician, they're caught, they're in trouble, and we all have to endure that excruciating thing called the public apology. Do you know what I mean? And, and they have to come before the cameras and say, I'm sorry if you got offended. You know, and it's always on us. I'm sorry for that I'm so easily offended. And, and, they, and they essentially have to apologize. But they have to feel some sense of shame. So Paul says, I don't, Paul thinks to the future, to the day he'll stand before Christ and says, I don't want to be ashamed. I do not want to get to that day and feel any sense of shame. And so it it begs the question, doesn't it? It begs the question for our own minds to cast our minds to that day. Am I living in a way today that on that day I will be ashamed? And Paul wants to say, I, will not, I, don't, I have confidence that I won't be. I won't have gone through this suffering for nothing. God will have kept his promises. Prayers will have been answered. My suffering's vindicated. So it's not this, but it is this. What is it? Well, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now this is perfect. So what's the opposite of Paul feeling ashamed? Because what you expect someone to say is, oh, I don't want to be ashamed. What I want to be is honored. I want to be glorified. I want to be lifted high, exalted. That's, that's the opposite of me feeling shame. Well, but that's not what Paul writes, is it? I want, I don't, what's the, what's the contrast? I, I don't want to be ashamed. What do I want instead of that? Christ to be honored. Christ to be glorified. Now, how does that happen? How is that the opposite of me feeling shame? Well, it's all to do with what he loves, isn't it? I mean, we all want the, th- the things that we love, we want them honored. Self-love desires self-honor. But he loves Christ. And so he wants Christ honored. And then he adds this, in my body, whether by life or by death. So he says, I've got this body, essentially, this body, this physical body, it lives and it dies. I don't know the future. So his, his trial may lead to this body living. It may lead to this body literally dying. But either way, Christ's honor is not limited to a positive outcome for my body. Christ could be honored whether this body ceases to exist or this body goes on living. Christ can be honored in both. So there's a particular way that Paul's saying, I can live There's a particular way that Paul's saying, I can die. There's a way that I can do both of those that Christ is seen as honorable, as glorious, as magnificent. So then the question is for us, how? How can Christ be honored in both our living and our dying? And then we get to verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So first, living is Christ. So Christ is honored in my living when to me to live is Christ. Now to live obviously is a pretty broad category, right? So you go, well, well does that include? Probably. You know, does it include that? Yeah, probably. If it includes living, if it requires you to be living, it includes that. And so for me to live this broad umbrella for everything that happens within my life, it's summarized in this Christ. It literally in the Greek, it just says to live, Christ, to die, gain. It doesn't have the word is. It's just powerful, powerful language. So to live is about him. To live is for Christ. It's for his glory, his supreme desire. Not only above sin, but also what's good. 
So, so Paul wants Christ to, 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 he wants to look at sin and go, nope, I love Christ. But he also wants to look at just the good things in life and go, you know what's even better than that? Christ himself. He says the same, he says that essentially in chapter 3, doesn't he? Chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. For whose sake I've lost everything. Consider it as rubbish compared to the surpassing grace of knowing him. Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to gain him. He's far greater than all the gains, all the good things that he just listed in chapter 3. I get Christ. He's far greater. In Galatians 2.20, he writes like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ is not a compartment of Paul's life in any sense. He is his life. He's not just an event. He's not like a Sunday or a five minutes in the morning. Christ is a person and he's become Paul's life. The commentator, one commentator puts it like this. He says, the preaching of Christ is the business of my life. The presence of Christ, the cheer of my life. The image of Christ, the crown of my life. The spirit of Christ, the life of my life. The love of Christ, the power of my life. The will of Christ, the law of my life. And the glory of Christ, the end of my life. If Paul traveled, it was on Christ's errand. If he suffered, it was in Christ's service. When he spoke, his theme was Christ. And when he wrote, Christ filled his letter. That's the Christian life, isn't it? To live is Christ. I don't think, sometimes I think we fall into the trap of thinking, Paul was a radical Christian. He was a particular kind of Christian that for him to live was Christ. Now, this is Christianity. This is 101, isn't it? To make our whole lives about one person, Jesus himself. I just think often, I've said this to our church, I wonder if Paul would even recognize modern Western Christianity. He would just think, what is this thing that's kind of like a sprinkling of Christ. Do you know what I mean? Like a, a sprinkling of, just it's a, like, yeah, I've got Jesus here. That's part of my life. Like I, I compartmentalize that. I, I sprinkle my life with a bit of church attendance, but that's about it. And I think Paul would be like, no, what are you talking about? To live. And then, of course, to die is gain, which logically follows, doesn't it? Because death is only a threat to us to the degree that it robs us of our, of our goals, our desires. So that's why this sentence doesn't make sense. If you, if you substitute Christ with anything else, the sentence just falls apart, doesn't it? If to live is money, to die is not gain. The sentence doesn't work. <laughs> you know, to, to, if, if to live is fame, then to die is not gain. If to live is notoriety, then to die is not gain. Indeed, if to live is anything in this world, then, then the, the sentence just breaks down. It can, Christ is the only word that can fit in that sentence to make sense of it. Because if Christ is in the sentence, then, well, then it's not the frustration of our desires, but it's the fulfillment of our desires to die. And so this is how I think this is one way we test if to live is Christ for us. We work our way backwards. Is dying gain for us? Is it truly gain for us? And this is a really good test for my own heart to think about again, if preparing for this, this sermon, is to, is to death. Because I feel, honestly, I feel like I've got a fair bit to live for. 
if I'm honest. Like, I really enjoy pastoring the church where I'm at. I really look forward to what God might do with this church. Um, so we would love to plant other churches out of our church. We'd love to send... I, I just, I really, I enjoy preaching, right? People may not enjoy listening to my preaching, but I, can, I enjoy preaching, right? I, I would love to be preaching this book until I've just totally run out of energy and I've hit 95 and I'm like, I'm done. Someone else better have a go. Something like that. Um, but not just personally, but I, I mean, I have a family of five kids, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, right? It's well organized. And it's the only organized aspect of my life. Um, but I've, I feel like I've, honestly, I feel like I've got a lot to live for with regards to my wife, first and foremost. So we've been together over half our lives already. We're only 32. Uh, we've been together over half our lives. And, and, and I'm just, I'd love to be very, very old with her. I think we would make great old people. I, I just think I would love to just be pashing on and, you know, just, just you know, just trying to embarrass my children, you know, do stuff like that, right? I just, I, I look for, I want, I, I love, I love being around my wife. I want to be around her for many, many years to come. And then my children, I, I want my, I'll, I look forward to seeing my boys and I long for my boys to grow up and be godly men of God who will, who will have children of their own and will raise them in Christ and teach them tough and tender men of the word, do you know what I mean? I long for that. And, 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 and for my daughters, I have great things that I would love to be around for. Uh, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, I look forward to kind of walking them down the aisle and giving them to some dude who better love Jesus a lot and, 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 and seeing them become mummies and loving their children the way their mummies loving them right now. I, and then them having grandchildren and I can be a grandparent and kind of spoil them rotten and give them back that kind of thing and then I'm I mean I've I started young enough so I could have great grandchildren <laughs> that's potential I would love all of those things but to die is gain because the thing that death gives is is the most ultimate thing isn't it it's Christ himself it's more of him and anything else makes an idol of my children, a weight that they can't bear. Monty Williams was right when he said in the eulogy, let's not forget what's most important. And I think the world, the world looked, people responded to that video and just were like, what is he talking about? Because what's more important than your health? What's more important than your family? And you just go, it doesn't make any sense to us. Well, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so then from verses 22 to 26, Paul unpacks what this life and this death looks like. So verse 22, he says this, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So he says, if, this is hypothetically, what if, let, let's just say I live through this. Like, let's just say I don't end up being executed. I live I want my life to honor Christ, to live as Christ. So what's that going to look like for me? Fruitful labor. I'm going to get to work. I'm not going to go, phew, man, I nearly died in prison then. Thankfully, that didn't turn out like that. I'm going to head to the beach and make the most of this. No, he says, if, if I keep living, this is what it's going to look like for me. 
fruitful labor. I'm going to get to work. There is too much to be done. There is too much at stake. People need the gospel. People need to be saved. That's what it's going to look like for me if I keep living. And of course, Christ would be honored in that. And then Paul shifts back to dying as well. And he says, Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So I don't think he's actually literally talking about, I've got a decision to make whether I'm going to live or die now. And he's going to, you know, I I think he's just talking about preferences. And and for Paul, it's a legitimate tension. He says, he says, what does he say? He says, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Like, it's a genuine tension for him. It's like, man, death, life, it's, you know, I find that convicting just in and of itself that it was a struggle for him. But then he ends up saying what it is, and it is, his preference is to, well, to depart is to be with Christ. Right? That's his preference. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So remember... So remember the questions that we're asking through this, through this passage. How can Christ be honored in my body, right? whether by life or by death? We're talking about life right now. How can Christ be honored in my life? Well, to live must be Christ. Now, what's that life going to look like? Well, it's fruitful labor for me. Now, the death side that we've been talking about is, well, I want Christ to be honored in my death. Well, what's that going to look like? Well, I need to consider death to be gain. Now, why on earth would death be gain? Well, if I depart, I'll be with Christ. And he's saying, that is far better. Because the moment you're about to lose everything in this whole world is the moment that you gain Christ, more of him. Being with Jesus is, is actually the point of the whole Bible story, I think. I think the Bible seeks to answer one fundamental question. And the fundamental question is this. How can a holy God dwell amongst sinful people? How can we be with God, basically? And the Bible wants to answer that question. And the gospel does answer that question, thankfully. Now, I often have to say this, and and I think it's worth saying, it's obvious, but it's worth saying, if we don't love Jesus, then we won't love heaven. Because to to depart is be with Christ. I feel like I say this to unbelievers fairly regularly, because they'll often say to me, Sam... I'll be in heaven. God will let, you know, I'm a pretty good person. And I say, I just don't understand what you think heaven's about. Because it's about Jesus. And I've just talked to you about Jesus and you show no interest in him whatsoever. And we're going to get to heaven. It's all going to be about Jesus. I don't, I don't know why you think you want to be in heaven. Right? Because right now you show zero interest in, in who he is and what he has done for you. His grace towards you, his works for you on the cross and in his resurrection. You ignore it, you despise it, you consider it irrelevant, and then think you want to be in heaven at the end of this? It doesn't make any sense. Now for Christians, we want to get to heaven. Why? Not because it's going to be just for the party and the, the, kind of the streets of gold and all, and we'll see relatives. Christ is there. And to depart will be with him. That's far better. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You can feel his tension, isn't it? Well, you know what's best for you is I remain in the flesh. For me, it would be better to go, but for you, this is good for you, so I guess I'll stay. It's a bit of guilt trip on them. Um, Verse 25 convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress 
and your joy in the faith. So that's what the fruitful labor is talking about, I think. He says, I'm going to stay. Why? For your joy, your progress. How? What? In the faith. I want my life to honor Christ. In my living, that he would be honored. Right? In my body, if the body keeps living, I want Christ to be honored. How? Well, to live will be Christ. Fruitful labor. What's that fruitful labor look like? Well, it's for your progress and your joy in the faith. So how does progress and joy in the faith relate to honoring Christ in his life? So my life will honor Christ if you have joy and progress in the faith. Does that make sense? Christ is honored in by myself, my life, because other people are following Christ with joy and progress in faith. Now, of course, faith is, that's the dynamic of faith, isn't it? The word for faith is literally other, otherwise translated as trust, rely, believe, depend, right? So these are all honoring things. The people that you trust, the people that you rely on, the people that you are willing to depend on, you are honoring them by doing that, aren't you? I mean, if I, if I say, you can look after my kids, I trust you with my kids, I'm honoring the person, aren't I? And so if we do that with Christ and people are doing that with joy and progress in faith, God doesn't want just begrudging submission, you know. Oh man, I got do that. Doesn't bring him honor. No joy, joyful progress in faith, dependence, reliance upon Christ. Christ is honored in my life because people are doing that, and I'm helping them do that. That is a grand call for everyone in a church, isn't it? To partner together at Canterbury Gardens and say, "I am here for your joy and progress in the faith." That's how Christ is going to be honored by my life. Because you're growing, and you're growing in your joy for Him. I think that's wonderful. A wonderful vision for our lives. Verse 26, it rounds it up. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Again, it's about the glory of Christ Jesus. Because of my coming to you again. This is Paul's ministry. I come to you again. You're gonna, it's going to result in you glorying in Christ Jesus. So that's the passage. Let me just wrap up really quickly. Um, as we all look ahead to whatever life journey that we have on this earth, the, 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 the journey between this moment right now and, our, and the end for us, what's it going to look like? Um, I think John Piper was right. You don't need to know a lot of things, but you need to know a few things. You don't need to master a lot of things, but be mastered by very few things. But the few things need to be great things. They can't be trivial things. And be willing to die for them. And so Paul, I think, starts like this. Starts, he says, start here. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed. But that Christ would be honored in my body. To live is Christ. To die is gain. If I give my, and, and, and what I want to do with my life between now and then is give myself to others' progress and joy in the faith. That's an unwasted life, I think. That is not a very spectacular life, by the way. That's like very plain and very ordinary. It's catching up for coffees. It's reading the Bible with someone. But it is, it is the things that God prizes above all other things. It's the ordinary means. It's the ordinary, wonderful things that God has called us to. I think it's a biblical vision for our life and our death. Adoniram Judson was 
one such person who had such an unwasted life and gave himself for the joy and the progress in the faith of Burmese people who had never heard the gospel. And so he went there to share the gospel and he was leaving from America, but he really wanted Anne, this, this woman that he really wanted to be his wife, to go with him. And so he writes to Anne's father, I don't know if you've, you've, you've heard this letter before, he writes to Anne's father saying, can Anne come with me? So I'm thinking of it as a father of daughters. How would I respond to a letter like this from this Adoniram Judson saying, I'm going to Burma and this is what it's going to be look like. And he does not sugarcoat anything. And this is what he wrote. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Come on, that is a man, right? And so, but then he says this, it turns. (laughs) Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home? and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamation of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her, through her means from eternal woe and despair? Essentially, he's saying, well, are you happy for your girl, for her to live would be Christ and to die would be gain? Um, And that's a good question for all of us, I think. Um, to, To work for each other's progress and joy in the faith. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this this passage is really glorious passage it's not a complicated passage but it is profound um, it searches our hearts and souls and so we do pray that you would find us faithful to the end and to, to us we would for us to live would be truly Christ to die would be gained for us and you would use us for the sake of others' joy and progress in the faith. Help us to not long for bigger things than that, but to be very content and satisfied in the callings you've given us. We pray this for your sake. Amen.